Politics are hard, but Jesus lights the way. I'm Josh, and this is We the Peace. We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to mobilizing Christian leaders to bring Jesus-centered peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of Jesus are central to discipleship. We the church are we the peace in a hurting and violent world. In season two, we explore how Christian leaders can develop a Jesus-centered outlook on politics. What does Jesus have to do with politics? How does the kingship of Jesus impact our understanding of modern politics? In what way is the church a political institution? We will define politics, walk through the four Christian views on politics, and then look to the ministry of Jesus for how Christians are to relate to and mobilize politically. Let's jump into this week's episode. Awesome. Well, we have with us Brandy Miller. Welcome. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. So we are in a series right now called Jesus Centered Politics. That's season two of this podcast, We the Peace. And first, I wanted to hear a little bit about you, where you are right now, what you're working on, your podcast, which is incredible, Reclaiming My Theology. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so for the last nearly 10 years, I've been a campus minister to college students. So asking the question, what does it mean for college students and folks who are going through what I call like second puberty? How do we help folks have a deeper sense of themselves and of God as they develop and grow and individuate? And so a lot of that has involved directing justice programs and helping students have internships that help connect them to cities and to spaces where they live and to the marginalized, really the most marginalized among us. Um, And then in addition to that, I have a podcast called Reclaiming My Theology, where we attempt to dismantle the systems and values that are unseen and untalked about, untalked about, not talked about in our spiritual spaces. So we're taking our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress is our little tagline. But really, it's just me talking to my friends about things that we care about and trying to take this deconstruction, reconstruction journey from... I think I've only seen that in the context of really white men talking about deconstruction and reconstruction in ways that feel like they're getting any traction. And so we're trying to have those conversations in a way that actually makes space for people who aren't uh, jaded white guys. So that's largely what I'm doing right now, apart from, you know, surviving COVID times, figuring out how to cope with, you know, being inside for nine months and all of that. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing a little bit. I'm going to start off and I'm so excited to get your insight on this because you have been posting a lot of. Um, podcast episodes on the issue of politics leading up to the 2020 election, which has been very enriching for me. But let's start really broadly. What is key to peace in the 21st century? The main thing that I think about is an active nonviolence. So choosing to see the ways that violent language, imagery, practices, and ideas have infiltrated our minds, our we're going to be really Christian about it, our hearts, our pulpits, our jobs, and doing everything that we can to dismantle the assumptions of violence that we live out of every day, um, both toward humans, to ourselves, toward others, and toward the earth itself. And Mm. in doing so, 
growing in deeper empathy and awareness for what is in and around us and to be able to pursue peace from there. And so I think I don't think we can pursue peace if we don't engage with the opposite of peace, which would be like discord or violence. That's really powerful. Okay, getting getting into politics in specific, and I'm going to define it uh, because in this season I define politics as human-made systems of power or government, whether centralized or decentralized, that promote human flourishing and and basically politics being public good. I'd love to hear a little bit about your faith tradition um, whenever you intersected with Christianity and how that related to politics. Yes. So I grew up, I didn't grow up Christian, but when I became a follower of Jesus and whatever that means, I don't even know if I followed Jesus or I think I became a Christian, which those can be very different things. I think it's very easy to be a Christian and very challenging to follow Jesus, especially around this issue of peacemaking and peace. Yeah. But my community claimed to be apolitical, but there was an underlying current or underlying assumption that everyone was Republican and that if you didn't vote Republican, that you had been corrupted by the world somehow. And so we would call things that liberal folks did or Democrats did political, politicized, a co-optation of the gospel. We called our own political things gospel issues instead of calling them politics. So being uh, pro-traditional family models, yeah. being anti-gay, anti-abortion, pro-Israel. And so there was like all of these things that felt like they were definitely political things, pro-military. We had American flags at our pulpit. And so... While we didn't say that we were political, all of the symbols and images and ideas that we were kind of perpetuating throughout our community were indeed political. And so I think the subversive message that that taught me was that the things that I think are godly, quote unquote, are gospel, but everything else is political and political is bad. Therefore, everything that we do that's political is good because it's gospel. Yeah, that's that's really that's really good. So right now, the the political postures or the way that we engage as a church is not working well. If we were just pragmatist about it, we're like, this simply isn't working that, that Jesus is either the latest progressive vision of humanity on one side, or it's like the make America, let's go back to this weird warped Jesus from the past that didn't exist. That's very colonial and, 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 it's not working well. And we just went through an election where we were reminded once again, it's not working. And so if our political theology is diseased, to use kind of Willie Jennings language, yeah. what is the disease? What are we getting to that is ultimately ending in it not working well for the witness of the church? I don't know that I have like a casual response to this question because I think that there are ways in which the historic trend of Christians in the United States getting in bed with political power isn't like a new thing. It's an old thing that has new iterations. And so as I consider even things like the glorifying of the founding fathers and the ways in which they use their faith to justify, yes, religious freedom, but also enslaving and buying and selling human bodies, there's always been a disconnect there, but as long as spirituality has been attached to power, it has been corrupted by violence and oppression. And so I think that the disease that I see playing out is that we, that Christianity has blinded itself to oppression, gotten in bed with oppressive systems, and then lived those out as though they were gospel, creating this like Frankenstein version of Jesus that looks way more like the leaders of whatever political party than it does like the Jesus of the Bible who we see. And I love the uh, 
the title of this series that you all are doing because I kind of I love the double entendre of it like you have Jesus centered like Jesus hyphen centered politics or you have like a sentence like Jesus centered politics and I'm like yes Jesus centered politics in his life because he centered the flourishing of other people and so when I look at what we're doing right now it seems that we're privileging things that are beyond human experiences we're or uh, I'll say that differently that we're privileging inanimate things over human and like the earth flourishing. We're privileging money, we're privileging ideology, we're privileging political platform. And I think when we as followers of Jesus privilege the inanimate over the living, breathing, moving, existing, then we lose the flourishing of all people as our primary objective. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. You know, you're talking about getting getting in bed with power. And in the last episode, I tried to lay out clearly the Constantinian Augustinian hangover that we have within North America um, that was perpetuated through the Reformation and the different views that were adopted through colonialism and were smuggled into the version of Christianity that we have today that completely affect who we are. And so I, I tried to give the solution of political witness that the church itself is the political vehicle by which God is trying to do something in the world, promote human flourishing, and that if we had to be specific, that it is subversion to politics, a faithful subversion to politics, and that we see Jesus doing that in his ministry, in his life, as he mobilized, as he was a grassroots organizer, as he was starting the church. From your perspective, what does Jesus-centered subversion look like for like individuals in North America right now they're like i want to follow jesus and i'm i'm realizing for the first time it's not just about like asserting myself through a vote even though voting is important what does subversion look like for an in individual and then let's move to faith communities after that what about for an individual well i don't know that i actually have a framework where i separate the individual and the communal and yeah. and so what, but what i've been thinking about lately has been the book of luke i basically live in luke 1 to 10 it is the core kind of text of my life, and it makes sense of how I think about Jesus and politics and how we are to live in the world. Because right in the beginning of Luke, we have well, we have a lot of things that happen, but that kind of climax in the Magnificat where Mary is saying she's theologizing out of her own bodily experience with the divine, that God is going to bring down the proud, God's going to raise up the lowly, God's going to make the people who are hungry full and the people who are full right now are going to be hungry, that God is going to do this reversal. And the thing that God is doing in Mary's own body, the raising up a lowly person from the middle of nowhere to be a part of a divine thing, is the first fruits of what God is doing in all people. And so I think as individuals, we have to recognize that the things that are happening in us, the kind of liberation that God is wanting to bring in us, is a foretaste of the thing that God wants to do in the communities around us. So if I'm experiencing freedom and liberation, yeah then I am to bring freedom and liberation to other people. And as that happens, as we see Mary's song kind of play out, we move into this Luke 3, John the Baptizer forerunner, where this raising and lowering image comes back as he quotes Isaiah saying, right, prepare a highway for God, the mountains are going to be made low, the valleys are going to be raised up, the crooked paths are going to be made straight. And as that happens, John shows up to make the way clear for God's way to come, right? The kingdom of God, most essentially, I think, is like when what God wants to have happen happens in the world and the community that's reflected out of that. And so John comes and he says to a bunch of Jewish people to come be baptized into their own faith, to come be baptized into a more true version of that. 
And their response to him is to ask the question that I think we all have to ask to do our politics, which is, what do we do? It's not what do we believe or what do we think, which I think is where Christians get caught up. It's what do we do? And so I think individuals have to ask the question, when I see the person of Jesus, when I understand that Jesus is coming to bring a redemptive, upside down, renewing movement, what do I do? And John's responses to three groups of people all involve their money, their exploitative practices, their careers, and their violence. And so I think for individuals, we have to engage with our attachment to money and capitalism, our commitment to or disillusionment around violence, and the ways that we use our vocations. And that is happening not as individuals, while the implications are individual, it's happening as a community of people who are all being asked to give away, if you have two cloaks, give one away, to give away half of their stuff, to not do the things in their job that they're allowed to do that are unethical and problematic. And so I think as we enter into politics, I think Luke would tell us in the story of Jesus that we are to ask, what do we do? And then to let our money, our violence, our systems, and our careers be the things that change first. What is, you know, the the churches that you've been involved in, and I'm not going to sit here and have us trying to find what church is and isn't, but the churches you've been a part of that you've been excited and proud to be a part of as they've related politically, whether it's local, locally, regionally, or national politics, what have been some of the things that... Uh, uh, you've been involved with that has been encouraging to you uh, in relation to try and be Jesus-centered in politics? Well, one thing that is, this sounds like very simple and maybe very trite, but is just places, like spaces created with common rules and understandings where we have conversations together. Because in the polarization of our world right now, conversation is the first thing that's that's lost. We would rather have like a quippy, memeable, tweetable, concept that's easy to understand rather than understand the complexity and nuance of all things. And I'm not saying that complexity and nuance will make us change our minds, but it does help us to humanize each other, which is core to everything that Jesus did is to, to stop and listen long enough to be transformed when the image of God in you meets the image of God in another person. And so I think that, yeah, the community I'm a part of now has created space for conversation. And I just think that, to be honest, the most exhausting thing that I see most churches doing right now is playing both sides as though both sides are equal. Yeah. Like in the situation right now, and I'm going to be as explicitly political as I always am, but when we are talking about the implications of Donald Trump's policies on the marginalized and Joe Biden's, playing both sides in that situation is really challenging if you're listening to people's stories and not just abstracting issues into just like, I'm pro-life or I'm not pro-life or I'm yeah. whatever. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Because it so tells me that you're not listening to people who are impacted by the issues that you say you so care about. And how can you care about an issue if you don't care about the people that it impacts? And so I think just having some space in my church community to not play both sides and not even to say like, yeah, my church doesn't say who you should vote for or whatever, but does say like, hey, white supremacy on the rise in the Trump administration is a problem and we have to look at that. Or the way that we engage in violence and war overseas, that matters. The way that we treat immigrants at the border, that matters. And what we're seeing right now isn't right. And so I think trying not, I think just being willing to marginalize people or not being willing to. My church has been very willing to recognize that when you say anything political, whether it's something that feels neutral to you or not, that you're marginalizing somebody and that Jesus does choose to marginalize people in his ministry. And it is always the powerful, the religious and yeah, and the wealthy. And if Jesus is going to marginalize those folks through his sermons that center the poor 
and those without power, then I think that the church should be able to do that too. And my church has done that, which has been really great. So yeah, I don't know, conversation, not playing both sides, then living out things practically with our money and our resources. Yeah, that's so. that's powerful. And for those of you who are listening, I hope you're understanding how absolutely countercultural uh, uh, what Brandy is saying. It's so basic. Literally, you're saying creating space to listen, creating space to listen to one another's stories, not uh, uh, being neutral when it comes to evil and injustice and what those uh, who are in power are doing with the resources that they have at their disposal. And it's it's sad, Brandy, but that is like right now countercultural, like creating space yes. for conversation. Oh my goodness. Really? That has to be something we have to say, but actually it does. That's the bar. <laughs> That's the bar. The point of entry is that we would display some like intention to listen and have a conversation. And as you said, you have to look at the ministry of Jesus. And so as you look at the conversations that Jesus is having in the gospel of John or, or what uh, Luke is writing as a historian and as somebody who is a person of privilege, writing these stories that are very controversial to Theophilus, as somebody of privilege confronting him in that status, that's a powerful thing for us. And I, I, I read Luke and I'm like, this is literally like an indictment of me. Mm -hmm. This is an indictment of me and I need to receive it and take it as a yes. message, uh, like a prophetic message to me uh, as an individual and my community. Uh, and I think, I think that's huge. That's important. And I, it's so encouraging to hear you creating space, not pandering and allowing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, but allowing the gospel to be political in its very nature, which is going to confront a two-party system. It's going to confront a Republican or a Democrat candidate, a Republican or Democratic candidate for various reasons, right? Yes. And, and um, it's kind of like, well, we're voting for Caesar one and Caesar two. And so let's, let's find the best way to move forward and, and to not act like that the gospel doesn't have those political implications. And it's encouraging that you're a part of a faith community that is striving for that imperfectly. It's so messy. It's so hard. We get it so mm -hmm. wrong. And that's the beauty of being in that, in, in that community. Yeah. I really love it. It's been so good. It's been so good. And I think it just does something to not devalue the person in life of Jesus, because I think that like, Right, Jesus' first sermon, his like first words, 52 words in English, at least sermon in Luke, is like he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, the captive, to the blind, the oppressed, to set those who are incarcerated free, to do all that. And so those are inherently political messages. And we act like somehow Jesus was just like killed on the cross because Jesus, because like God needed to kill Jesus to save you. And I'm like, no, Jesus was killed by a system, by a political system, a political and religious system. And so if we yeah. strip the politicization of Jesus out of the beginning of the story, we're going to miss the implications of it at the end for sure. And we will simply allow American politics to co-opt Jesus into a political vision that God never, ever intended for us to be a part mm -hmm. of. And so it's like never. those two very dangerous implications of um, allowing the kingship of Jesus to be just checked in at the door before you walk into some type of church gathering and yeah. how dangerous that can be. Okay, all that to say, promoting human flourishing is incredibly challenging and, and for Christians to understand how to do that. From your perspective, how can leaders promote human flourishing where they're at. Because yeah, national politics is overwhelming. Maybe we vote for somebody, maybe we don't. Regional can be, but 
in their local setting every day, what does it mean to promote human flourishing and therefore embody a Jesus-shaped politics? I think we get caught up in Jesus's command, and really this this old, old command that is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think a lot of us actually haven't been taught to love ourselves, one, so it's very hard to love our neighbor as we love ourselves when we like work too many hours, do too much chaotic stuff, are unself-aware of the way that we live among our people. Like I think there's so many ways that we don't even know how to love ourselves, so we can't love our neighbor very well, but that's an aside. I think what happens when we engage with politics is that we think that we're loving our neighbor, but our neighbor only looks like us, and we fail to recognize the irony of the story in which Jesus is talking about that, where the man is seeking, the lawyer is seeking to justify himself asking, who is my neighbor? And then we get the story of the Good Samaritan. So I think our view of our neighbor is too small to begin with. But then Jesus in his, we'll call it the upper room discourse, says to his disciples, I give you a new command, like a greater command, a greater command than the greatest command. This is the new command I'm giving you. And it's to love one another as I have loved you. And this command goes beyond the command to love God and to love people because Mm. it asks us the question, how did Jesus love? How did Jesus love us and how do we do that? And what do the disciples know? How do the disciples know what that means and how do we know that later? That's what's up. And so he says this thing, love them as I have loved you. And you're like, okay, well, how has he loved? He's loved by moving in to human space, to getting close to people, to being a part of their pain to walking and eating with people, hearing their stories and engaging with their pain in practical ways, not just spiritual ones, and sometimes only practical ones. I think of the story of the lepers who all get healing and only one come, one of the 10 comes back and he gets this kind of spiritual enriching, but the other nine still get healed. So Jesus is dealing with people's physical marginalization, their pain, yeah. what's happening for them, even when they're not doing the spiritual thing, which is amazing to me. And so we see that Jesus does that. And he says, like, love one another as I have loved you in this generous kind of way. And when you have, you have to ask the question then, well, what did the disciples interpret that to mean? And so when we look at the Acts community, it's very strange because they preach this sermon, like Peter preaches this sermon and their community kind of explodes. And it says that they did, I think, four things together. They fellowship, they eat together, they experience teaching and they gather every day. And I'm like, Jesus actually didn't do the things that they're doing around redistributing wealth, around creating structures and communities. So how do they know how to do that? But it's just they took the thing that Jesus was doing, getting close, building communities, engaging with diverse people who they wouldn't be around normally. And they're just taking that to the next level. Yeah. And so I think that for us in our communities, we just have to do what Jesus said to do, which, again, it can sound like quippy and ideological. But it's like, get close to people in your community refuse to theologize about people whose lives you are not a part of. Yeah. Like how many sermons have we heard from like a white guy pastor about communities of color or from a straight person about queer folks or from men about women who aren't in relationship with people enough to know what their words actually mean and don't have enough closeness to actually nuance those conversations in ways that I think Jesus and his early followers did. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm, I'm learning as you're talking the big picture of what you have said, which it's so important for us to take away. I asked you, how can we help people promote human flourishing? And you immediately go to the life of Jesus. You immediately go to the message of Jesus. You immediately say, how did Jesus do it practically in the first century context, ancient Palestine? And then look at the early church on how it's obvious that they took this message and they applied it in new and fresh ways within their context and setting as they're moving into the Gentile world. 
And so this is how we are supposed to do it in the 21st century. And this is what I love about following Jesus is that's so basic and so wonderful. And like my kids, I can be like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And they get that, but it's so complex and challenging and difficult as we move into unjust systems, as we move into um, a two-party system, as we move into politics, which are rife with so many things that stand against Jesus, which makes... I mean, that's why he's like so brilliant as he talks about hey, Caesar was Caesar's. And then like the Pharisees and Sadducees join up to kill him, which I know is terrible. But they do that because his politics confounds and subverts all their little categories, mm-hmm. all their little yes. ideologies. So this is a practical question for uh, for you. How do Christian leaders in- engage politically? Um, and so I-, I want you to think about Christian leaders. And, and this isn't people necessarily in charge of other people, but they have influence in their setting. Okay. I don't care where they are in the hierarchy. They have influence with people and they know that people care about what they think. How do we engage politically and say, I will vote for this person without over promoting, you know, uh, like a particular party or candidate or a position. How do you go about that in your life as people for sure ask you, well, what do you think about this position? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I used to believe that secrecy around politics was somehow holy, like that not saying who I was voting for or why I was voting around particular issues was somehow holy or like that politics were somehow private. I'm like, yeah, politics are personal, but they are never because they impact other humans' bodies private. And so when our politics become private, I have to ask the question, why? Good. And I think there's one answer to that that I think is acceptable enough, which is, but I don't think a lot of people are actually thinking about it in this way okay. because they do this in all other parts of their lives very freely. I think that when a when a pastor or someone with an actual authoritative platform that's been given to them says who they're voting for without enough context to let people think for themselves, that promotes indoctrination. And Boom. we do indoctrination with our theology all the time, very willingly and very happily. But when it comes to our politics, we choose to be a little bit more like elusive or slimy about it. Yeah. When the very things that we're preaching in our theology are the things that are shaping our politics. And both of those, the interchange in conversation of between our theology and our politics tells us a lot about ourselves. So I just don't think being secret about it is that helpful. But what I think is helpful is to be careful in how we speak to one, know what we think and why. And to be able to communicate that with space for other people whose experiences are not like ours. Because I think a lot of the time, politics becomes a binary of right and wrong or good and evil. And it's not that. It's a complicated mess in the middle. And so I think if I can... So what I used to do with my students was... like So 2016, we had the election. Donald Trump gets elected. Half of my students, or probably three quarters of my students, are like, what the F just happened? Yep. And the other quarter are really excited because they voted for Donald Trump. And so I set up five chairs in the middle of a room and then like another 40 chairs on the outside of it. And we did what I called a fishbowl. And so I sat in the middle and I asked questions about how they were feeling, what experiences shaped how they voted, and what it's been like to be a Christian for them in the last 24 hours since the election happened. Dang. And so we created a space where people could come in and out and you just get to choose in and out of that circle as as much or as little as you want to to have conversations and it is my job as a leader to, yes, say what I'm thinking, say what I'm feeling, but also create space for there to be conversation and nuance and to recognize that I am not the authority in the conversation. Jesus is the authority. And I have an interpretation of Jesus, an interpretation of my own life. But to not say anything just feels like, I don't have a non-swearing word to talk about it. 
Um, just nonsense. It just seems like nonsense to me because it, if the assumption is that most Christians are voting a certain way, my inability to say that I'm voting differently yeah. just implies that I'm engaging with the status quo that's out there that's harming people's bodies, lives, and lived experiences. Yeah. It's so good. And when we don't engage uh, a political conversation, then we allow discipleship to happen through our media. We allow discipleship to happen through candidates. We allow discipleship to happen through the principalities and powers of the air as they are broadcast through uh, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, BBC, whatever, pick it. If we want to help people become more like Jesus, discipleship is pretty central to that. And if Jesus is king, then his political identities have something to say to the public square here in North America. Therefore, why in the world would we not allow our people to experience that conversation, the beautiful thing you just talked about with your students? But we're going to be on our phones. We're going to be having those conversations with family members that are more than likely going to be thinking the same way as us. We're going to be watching the news or watching clips or be on YouTube. So discipleship is happening on these issues, whether we think they are or not. Yes. So I, I love that response to the election where you did that with that students. And, and I hope as you guys are listening to Brandy, uh, that holy subversive creativity of doing things different than the world comes to light in your heart as God leads you. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. Mm. Okay, I have one last question for you, and I might throw in a few more because cool. who knows. But wisdom you have for Christian leaders who are looking to help their organizations develop a Jesus-shaped politics. Well, I don't think that you can start with politics in and of itself. It's good. Um, because I think that many of us try to have the political conversation once every four years and then find that we have too many value gaps and functional like skill gaps in our communities or in our relationships and how we operate in them we just have too many gaps and so i don't think you can start with politics by itself because just to say jesus is political just becomes like another quippy thing i think you have to be specific about what it means that jesus is political and who that impacts so if you don't care about the poor in your community before you hit an election you sure as hell are not going to care about the poor when it comes time to vote yeah. Unless you really feel guilty or pressured by somebody in your life. And that's just coercion, which we learn to accept from the church in a lot of our situations anyway. But I think that you have to be specific about the values that you are engaging with in your community and developing skills in your community to have conversations around those things. So one of the major ones that I'm engaging with all the time is white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, and violence. And if I have, if I'm engaging with those things in the years up leading up to an election, then my community already has a frame which, with which to understand the political conversation as it's coming to them. And I think in the, in the thing that you're describing in that last question or last response is discipleship is happening all the time because we are taught to and we are very comfortable being indoctrinated. We are very comfortable having an emotional experience that then impacts how we think. And the church teaches us to do that, right? All of our lights and our bells and whistles and our loud music and our do-do-do-cat, do-do-cat songs that make us feel something when we show up in a church space, all of that teaches us that an emotional experience tied with a theological message is how we are transformed. And so if we have that in our gut, and then we do that on social media a million micro times a day, of course, we are going to feel a lot of things. And so I think that as people in our, as people who are leading communities, 
we have to one make space for disagreement in our communities we ourselves have to know why we think what we think and to admit that we are wrong and to manage defensiveness in ourselves and to create the assumption in our community that people will think differently and that that is not a neutral thing that we all just like get along because we do but to go like no when so okay i can even give an example i was talking to a couple of my friends who are former students and their church has really mismanaged their engagement around Black Lives Matter stuff. Just has marginalized all the folks of color in their community. So they started a people of color Bible study. Well, that really threatened the pastor. And so now they're having all these conversations about why they need to be even having those conversations when my friends are saying like, hey, how you interact impacts my body. Like it impacts how I can be myself here. And the pastor just keeps saying, well, you're not saying it with enough grace or with enough mercy or with enough kindness. And I'm like, Grace, mercy, and kindness, great. But that does not trump someone's lived body being targeted by police violence. Those are not the same thing. And so this white pastor is creating a culture in his community where any disagreement with him is seen as theological subversion, as being too liberal. And he's missing that people are trying to just like scream, like, please hear my story. Listen to me. And so I think for a lot of leaders, we just have to ask whose stories am I willing to hear and whose stories do I automatically bodily meet with resistance? And what do I do about that? So that those resistances aren't the first thing that I feel. So I I think I would say that for leaders. Yeah. That's awesome. Just wanted to say thank you for your time, but before I let you go, I do want you to tell us about season two of your podcast. When is it hitting? And uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So in the first season of the podcast, we were doing Reclaiming My Theology from White Supremacy. So asking how do the attributes of white supremacy, uh, hierarchy, individualism, binary thinking, things like that, how do those shape our theology and how do we live out outside of that and look to communities of color and marginalized communities who have been doing something about that? This next season, we're going to be tackling white supremacy again, because I always say that you can't dismantle 400 years or 500 years or multi-millennia of white supremacy in a 12-week podcast. You can't? What? (laughs) It's so American. (laughs) You mean a class can't teach you everything you need to know about one subject? I call that sociology freshman 101. (laughs) You suddenly learn about an issue and think that you can solve it because you understand something now that people have understood for a long time. So in this next season, we're going to be talking about uh, more specific things that I think we experience uh, conceptually. And so we're going to be talking about hyper-rationalizing, toxic positivity, spiritual bypassing, defensiveness, competition, utopianism, coercion, exceptionalism, disembodiment, banking models of theology, and the ways that those shape us. And so I'm calling it white supremacy 2.0, but really dismantling white supremacy 2.0. No one needs to teach us how to be white supremacist in our ideologies because we already do that pretty naturally. So I'm excited about it um, because I think that there will be a lot of life and freedom for folks in hearing their experiences named by other folks when their experiences aren't normally named in public space. Yeah. And so for those of you that um, have had a hard time being in and around the evangelical church, and even as you hear those phrases that Brandy mentioned, uh, if that resonates with you, I would absolutely encourage you to go over and and follow her podcast i've been listening to it um, since it started it's been hugely encouraging also um uh confrontational 
uh, towards me in a really healthy way in me thinking, okay, why do I think that? Why do I believe that? Why is that something I'm resistant to? Why is it something I'm drawn to? And so, um, yeah, it's, it's been a breath of fresh air and, and thanks for being on the airwaves. So glad to be. It's, it's wild and confusing and good all at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time, Randy. Yeah, not a problem. I hope you enjoyed that interview with the very special Brandy Miller. I've got five takeaways from this interview. First, Christian leaders should create space for hard conversations. Second, Christian leaders should start with the gospel of Luke when getting to know Jesus. Third, Christian leaders should look to prioritize Jesus in understanding our own political activity. Four, Christian leaders should prioritize the stories of those who have been marginalized. And five, Christian leaders should reject various forms of violence as they follow Jesus. This podcast called We The Peace can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and most places where podcasts land. Blessings as you seek to embody the peace of Jesus wherever you are. <laughs>